Hey, I'm Alan Hunter. You're listening on the Pantheon Network. Hey, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to Deep Dive, the all music books podcast where we speak with authors of music books, bios, history, criticism, cultural takes, and everything in between. I'm your host, Steve J. Today's guest is Sarah Marcus, the author of Girls to the Front, the true story of the Riot Girl Revolution. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me. Your book is an incredible deep dive into a lot of issues and not just the music. Can you give our listeners kind of the dime version of the genesis of the Riot Girl movement? The Riot Girl movement began in the early 1990s. It was a movement that had twin beginnings in Olympia, Washington, the state capital of Washington State and the location of the experimental college, the Evergreen State College, and on the other side of the country, Washington, D.C., home of a legendarily political punk scene dating back to the 80s and even before. In the summer of 1991, conversations that had been happening between feminist punks in these two scenes came together in two kind of legendary events. One of them was a summer-long convergence of feminist punks from Olympia in the band Bikini Kill and in part of the band Bratmobile. The Bratmobile was a bi-coastal feminist band with two members who were in the Northwest, one member who was in Washington, D.C. The Northwest members of Bratmobile, along with the band Bikini Kill, traveled across the country and spent the summer in D.C., where they connected up with political punk bands and organizers who'd been working in D.C. for a while. One of the things that happened in that summer was that folks who were in these feminist punk bands started making a small zine. Now, your listeners probably know what a zine is, but just in case, I don't want to leave anybody behind. A zine is, for the 90s, a zine was a handmade magazine. Nowadays, there are probably zines that involve a lot of desktop publishing and digital tools. I would still say that a certain aesthetic of the mark of the handmade and of something that's not entirely polished are important components of what makes something a zine as opposed to a magazine. These feminist punks started making a zine and they titled it Riot Girl with three R's in girl, G-R-R-R-L. They made four issues of these zines and they were quite small. The first issue was just one piece of paper folded into fourths, Xeroxed on both sides. They would pass out these zines at shows to try and make friends, build community, make connections with punks who were already living in D.C. Because remember, most of the people who were spending the summer here that we're talking about right now were not from there and were trying to meet people. And toward the end of the summer, a meeting was called for all girls who want to talk about feminism and revolution. And they they had a meeting at punk activist house called the Positive Force House, which is now gone, but it was in Arlington, Virginia, just over the river from D.C. So the zine and the meeting were the East Coast part of what happened in the summer of 1991. And then what followed was the West Coast part, which was a music festival called the International Pop Underground Festival that had been put on by several key kind of punk community leaders. And I don't want to say curators because the the DIY scene in Olympia was very casual, very accessible. So the the notion of curating, as opposed to like setting up shows, inviting people to do things, the notion of curating that we talk about today would have been laughable at that time. But it was a multi-day festival and kind of a huge deal. 
And some of the, the feminist punk bands, including a band that was playing its first ever show at that convention, a feminist band of two girls called Heavens to Betsy, which becomes important because the singer of Heavens to Betsy is Corin Tucker, who would go on to form the band Slater Kinney, which probably many of your listeners have heard of. These two things, the meetings in the zine in DC and the music festival in Olympia kind of together started this idea that ended up spreading across the country, beyond the borders of the U.S., to certainly to Canada, to the U.K., and you know, over the subsequent decades to many, many places throughout the world, this idea of a radical, uncompromising punk feminist movement incorporating music, zines, meetings, conventions, other forms of art and performance, all starting from just this small group of friends who had an idea and recognized that its time had come. Very cool. And what and when was your connection to the movement? My involvement with Riot Girl came a little later in the game and quite slowly in ways that I think are interesting. By the fall of 1992, so a year and change after the things I just explained, the media had become very interested in Riot Girl. And there were a series of articles in places like USA Today and Spin and Newsweek. Seeing this article in Newsweek, which, by the way, was very controversial among people who were already involved in Riot Girl because they felt that the movement was being watered down, the article was inaccurate, it was also commodifying the movement and belittling it to readers who didn't know anything about it. But for me, as a 15-year-old living in the suburbs without much connection to anything very cool, but who, for whatever reason, was like very, very interested in reading feminist literature and was quite steeped in um, 1970s feminist theory. I read this article and I was like, oh my gosh, there are people my age, there are like teenage girls who are like working to do a feminism for our generation and making this happen. And it involved music, which was, you know, I was very into music and I played piano quite seriously. And I, I sort of knew from a distance that there was punk and I was interested in it, but I, you know, I didn't have my driver's license. I couldn't actually go to shows. <laughs> you, you know, you think of like the, the old like Looney Tunes cartoons where something that's very alluring, like is projecting a kind of willowy smoke up toward the nose of somebody who just then they, they, they stick their nose up into the air and they start to follow the aroma to find out where it comes from. And that was sort of my situation, except unlike a ripe pie sitting on a windowsill for Pepe Le Pew or whatever, it was sort of hard in the pre-internet age to follow the, the scent of a feminist punk radical revolution from a Newsweek article back to the source. And it took me a while. The next thing that happened a couple of months later was there was a radical feminist newsletter that came out of D.C. It had been publishing since the 70s. It was called Off Our Backs, all lowercase letters, very, very austere. And they ran an interview with some D.C. riot girls, and that included a mailing address. No website, of course, no email address. There was a P.O. box. Mm -hmm. And so I sent a letter to the P.O. box and I said, dear riot girls, you know, please tell me how I join you. And months and months and months went by. And then I got some flyers in the mail. And one of the flyers was like, here's where our meetings are and, and when, and you can just come and take the subway here. And one of the flyers said, like, we propose that all the girls who are interested in revolution should like draw on our hands, you know, just hearts or stars, whatever, so that you can like pick each other out in a crowd and like go to each other. And then shortly after that, I, I was at like an Amnesty International benefit concert at the next high school over from mine and the far out Maryland suburbs of DC. And I saw somebody that I knew who was wearing a little shrinky dink necklace that said Riot Girl on it. And I was like, oh, 
you, you know, so it wasn't even the, the stuff on the hands for me, it was this necklace, but still I was like, oh my gosh, tell me everything. She was like, oh yeah, come to the meeting. They're really nice. That was how I got looped in. And I went to meetings almost weekly then from then until I finished college and I made scenes and I learned how to play some instruments that weren't classical and got into a band with some people I met at a riot girl meeting. And, you know, that was really my life for a couple of years there. Sounds a lot like my rescue from 70s Florida with punk rock and scribbling gimme gimme shock treatment on my kids, you know, but uh, that's great. The Riot Girl music scene is clearly informed by both punk rock and the DIY attitude. And I loved how many of the girls interviewed in your book describe their ethos of learning to play an instrument on a stage. I mean, that's the epitome of punk rock. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And And part of this DIY ethos was that if you said that you were in a band, somebody was going to at some point be like, okay, I've just booked you for a show. And then you might go back to your bandmates and say, crap, I guess it's time for us to write some songs. We have a show book. When we talk about DIY and punk rock, like the aura of like total community support is such an important one. People are not sitting around waiting for somebody to like fail or mess up. People were sitting around waiting for, for the people that they knew to take brave uncertain steps and for whatever transpired there to transpire and i wonder what it's like for people now and like anytime you do anything there could be an army of people on twitter saying how bad it was i would love to know if young people today have similar networks that are that flexible that forgiving that encouraging recognizing that the point isn't to have like the most polished music you've ever heard to listen to. The point is to be part of a vibrant community where everybody is part of producing something together that makes life exciting. You know, there was an issue with punk rock, which was a bias in that music community as well as all across society. Can you explain Girls to the Front? Okay, so Girls to the Front was a a kind of rallying cry that came about in part because in some punk scenes in the early 90s, when Riot Girl kind of got going, it was the fact in some places or with some bands playing that the front section of a show up by the stage felt like a forbidding place for some audience members. The predominant mode of like listening and being an audience member in a punk show involved some kind of energetic dancing, sometimes called moshing at that time or slam dancing. Listening was done with your whole body. Like some of these whole body listening practices were undertaken as like ways to get out frustration and anger at, you know, various things that are going on in your life. But for a lot of audience members, including many, many, not all girls slash women slash people who were not dudes, But for many, that didn't feel like a place that was physically safe from a standpoint of perhaps being physically smaller and more vulnerable to getting crushed, but also vulnerable to having somebody take advantage of the concentrated chaos in the mosh pit to stick their hands somewhere that you didn't want their hands to be. And there were many, many girls who would complain about getting felt up in the pit and not want to be there. And so the girls would migrate to the edges of the stage to the left or the right or toward the back. Like we're also talking about a stage that's maybe like two feet off the ground. And if you're in the back, you can't necessarily see that well. Starting with Bikini Kill, but other bands picked it up too. 
Kathleen Hanna, the singer of Bikini Kill, would just say, I, I would like, you know, girls to move up to the front of the stage. So that's on the one hand. But on the other hand, from the standpoint of the band, like Kathleen Hanna spoke about how she felt safer on stage if there was this layer of like feminist punks in front, because as time went on, some people would go to Bikini Kill shows to yell at the band or to complain or to heckle them. And that could feel sort of scary if you're up on the stage and you're sort of isolated on the stage and the entire front audience members in front of you is not in fact fans, but as people who are hostile. So it became a sort of means of mutual protection and support between performers and audience. You're listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. We're speaking with Sarah Marcus, the author of Girls to the Front, the true story of the riot girl revolution. You mentioned Kathleen Hanna, and she formed Bikini Kill. Is it fair to say that's sort of the ground zero of the musical movement? I'm thinking carefully about how I'm going to answer this, because (laughs) it's not a simple question. It doesn't have a simple answer. The idea to hold the meeting in the summer of 1991 came from Kathleen Hanna. The band Bikini Kill, the idea to have a punk band that would be explicitly feminist, whose songs would be about gender and sexism and feminism, and whose songs would include absolutely overt calls for girls and women to be strong, start your own bands. You know, I would direct your listeners to the Bikini Kill song, Double Daria. It's a manifesto and an exhortation to the listeners to Dare you to do what you want. Dare you to be who you will. I mean, it's just, it's, it's really right up there. The, the mode of like direct address to the listener, please be strong, please stand up. The idea to have a band that proceeded in that way and whose, whose reason for existing was to issue those calls. Like that, that was Kathleen Hanna's brainchild. She was, of course, not the only person in the band. The band would not, the band Bikini Kill would not have been what it was without the drumming of Toby Bill, without the bass playing of Kathy Wilcox, without the guitar playing of Billy Karen. And Riot Girl would not have been what it was without the hundreds, thousands of other people who made zines, started bands, did community organizing to draw other girls and into the orbit of this idea and of this movement. Kathleen Hanna resisted always being painted as a leader. She would refuse interviews. She very much didn't want it to be a thing where she was like the figurehead because she understood organizing and she understood that the importance of it was that it belonged equally to everybody who was finding meaning in it and taking their own action to make it theirs. In addition, on a strictly logistical level, like Bikini Kill were, they were a working band. They were on tour a lot. You know, they were in the studio, they were on tour, the sort of day to day things of people having meetings and throwing benefit shows and all these other things that was after the opening days was largely out of the picture. She would, you know, come in and out when her travels permitted her. But it really became something quite diffuse with a lot of nodes of activity. Yeah, it's a very interesting scene and much bigger and not necessarily in terms of number of people, but you know, in reading through this, and, and I was unaware a lot of this, and you mentioned Toby Vale, and she wrote one of my favorite distillations of the scene in response to a negative piece on the band The Go-Go's. And she said, girls plus guitars is equal to sex plus power. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, that, that says a lot right there. And these are young girls, young women. Right. I mean, the people in Bikini Kill were, you know, some of the oldest, and they were in their early 20s. 
I can't think off the top of my head exactly how old Kathleen was, but I know this was all happening, you know, one or two years after her graduation from college. So while much of the rank and file, as it were, of Riot Girl consisted of people in their teens, you know, really like high school and college age people, the musicians in Bikini Kill and to a lesser extent, Bratmobile and, and Heavens to Betsy, because they themselves were a few years younger. Everybody was quite young and making everything up as they were going along. It wasn't like there was a sort of older mentor, even, you know, for all of Toby's fandom of the Go-Go's, for all of the, the influences that these bands were happy to claim in earlier feminist punk bands, such as X-Ray Specs or the Raincoats, the previous generations of feminist punks weren't like sitting here and advising and telling people how to do it. It was very much like being reinvented for this historical moment. And it was a historical moment, I would add, in which the centrality of young women to the ongoing debate about whether feminism was still relevant in the wake of the post-1970s backlash formed a, a key context for why creating Riot Girl was so important and why it caught on the way it did. Because when you had an analysis coming out that's saying there's some degree of Girls with power, whether that's through, you know, writing their own things or having guitars and making loud music, there's some element in the power structure that finds that both titillating and threatening and is going to attempt to keep it from getting too powerful while potentially also like shining a spotlight on it, but not in the most useful way. One of the things any good scene has, and especially one that's so defined by youth, you know, the names of some of these bands, and you just mentioned a bunch of them. Bikini Kill is a great name. Bratmobile, probably my favorite. I love Heavens to Betsy. My mother used to say that phrase all the time. And when I read that, I just thought it was the best name. Mm. Are there any other favorites of yours that I should know about? So you've just said the three major U.S. Riot Girl associated bands. And since we've said the three, we have to mention the fourth kind of leg on that chair, which is the British band, the Huggy Bear. They were definitely like the key Riot Girl proponents in the UK at that time. And they were just an absolutely phenomenal band. I kind of love the name. And I can say this because I didn't name this band, but the, my first band was called AKA Harlot Number One. <laughs> and I've always been very proud to claim that as the name of my first band. It's a good one. I'm sure you could do a great logo because some of the logos and the zine uh, illustrations in this movement were also super cool to look at as a graphics person. You know, the press treated this movement very condescendingly often, and they reinforced a lot of the stereotypes that they were fighting against. And the movement reacted quite strongly, shutting the press down. It's true. There was a point at which basically the, the extant Riot Girl chapters decided to stop giving interviews to the media. That was actually part of the context within which the Newsweek article came out, because a lot of people didn't want to talk to journalists at the time that this one Riot Girl in Minneapolis decided that she thought it was important to get the word out and that if nobody else wanted to talk to the media, she would be happy to. You know, it's interesting because that Minneapolis Riot Girl, her name is Jessica Hopper, and she's now, I believe, developing a, a television series on like women rockers. So she's mm -hmm. been uh, remarkably consistent in her career from that time forward. And she's actually a fascinating, a fascinating character in the story and a fascinating person in general. Even in the cases when journalists really wanted to get the story right, 
um, such as the case of the person who wrote the article for Spin, and I interviewed her. And she just remembered having such a difficult editing process. She wrote an article that she thought would be respectful of the people that she had interviewed and that she had met with. And she had actually run a draft past them, I believe. And they had said, okay, this looks good. And then she went through the editing process and the editors were changing things that she had said and moving different things up top and putting in details about how people looked that made the subjects of the article feel totally disregarded and belittled. I mean, there were certainly some journalists who were very excited about what they saw going on. You know, Emily White, who wrote basically the first feature about the movement and wrote it for LA Weekly, and then it was reprinted in the Seattle Weekly. Absolutely beautiful article, you know, and she got it. She really got it. But, you know, when there's a big trend and everybody, every editor is asking somebody like, hey, go out and get me a story on this, you know, there's going to be a wide range of whether the person who's working on the article really gets it and there's what kind of story makes sense to the editor to put out into the world. And part of that is just difficulty in taking seriously what young women are doing or working on. And that's, you know, there it, it must be slight or silly in some way, even if it's totally not. You pointed out the spin article and the music press wasn't that much more supportive. In the book, you have two well-respected colonists who gave some of the records very high marks and Rolling Stone savage. So, you know, what gives, right? The EP Bikini Kill has plenty of yowling and moronic nag to vomit tantrums over Stock's school of Sabbath riffage. Like almost all noisy bands lately, this one is better at melody than at ugliness, but usually opts for ugliness. Damn. Well, history has certainly proved them wrong. Whoever wrote that article, you know... Oh my God, that was Chuck Eddy. Chuck Eddy. <laughs> wow. How could you? Oops. Um, sorry, Chuck. Not all critical opinions stand the test of time. And, you know, if you're Chuck Eddy and you have a million opinions on a million of things, you are not always going to be right. <laughs> well, speaking of the test of time, it's important to recognize also that the grunge scene in, in Seattle, you know, Nirvana especially, and that's just a totally different scene from Olympia. You write that the effects on the Olympia scene after Nirvana blew up was just huge. It's true. Well, I mean, one thing that your listeners may not be aware of, or if they know just one thing about Bikini Kill, this may be precisely the thing that they know, is that the members of Bikini Kill and the members of Nirvana were kind of close. They were good friends. Toby Vale dated Kurt for a while. Kathleen Hanna was close with Chris Novoselic. And they would hang out together in Olympia when Nirvana was based there. And even after Nirvana, um, you know, made it big, they had Bikini Kill come and open for them for a legendary Halloween show in Seattle. Bikini Kill and Kathleen and Toby in particular had kind of a front row seat to seeing what that kind of tremendous fame could do to people and how it could really kind of mess with folks' heads. I mean, Toby spoke with me about just feeling quite sad to see that becoming famous and successful was not making Kurt happy. And so when in the resulting grunge gold rush, record labels were very interested in signing Bikini Kill, that really factored into their decision as DIY punks coming from, you know, an underground scene, they came to this with a skepticism of corporate rock labels in general, but especially their experience of seeing the way fame was really taking its toll on Nirvana and on the members of Nirvana played a big role in their deciding to stay independent and to keep putting out records on Kill Rock Stars, even as they had interest from, from bigger labels. And if, in fact, behind every great song is a great woman, or at least a great story, Kathleen Hanna 
prompted Nirvana's biggest song with just some hilarious graffiti. I did not know that story. Yeah, well, it's true. I mean, I don't really know that it's true that behind every great song is a great woman, but I do know that behind Smells Like Teen Spirit, there does lie a story of Kathleen spray painting Kurt Smells Like Teen Spirit on the wall of his room. Which I did not know that was deodorant either. Oh, yeah, well, so was, you were was... not a teenager in the 90s. Otherwise, you would have seen the ads. This much is true. This much is true. I was just becoming a parent in the 90s, so that's frightening. Right. Wow. Um, so I was curious if the bands were aware of the Runaways, who were when I was a really young kid. They were really big. But, you know, I thought about it, and the Runaways predated most of these girls and women by nearly 15 years, and that was three quarters of a lifetime. But I was surprised slash not surprised to see that Kathleen and Joan Jett did make a connection. They did indeed. And and Joan Jett was instantly so excited about Bikini Kill when she found out about that band. And then she she produced a three song seven in that some of Bikini Kill's greatest recordings. Your book goes really, again, deep and wide. And I have to ask, what what's the status of the movement today? Because it sure seems there's some obvious concerns, political, cultural, health-wise, affecting women today. Um, I mean, sexism is real. The patriarchy is still real. But it doesn't play out as much along these binary lines of like oppression of women and girls. That was the way it was. At the point when Riot Girl got going, some of the major wedge issues in American politics were, should teenage girls be allowed to make decisions about their health, specifically about reproductive access without permission from their parents? What should be done about sexual harassment in high schools? What should be done about the fact that, according to an American Association of University Women study that came out in the early 1990s, high schools are shortchanging girls and denying them a right to an equal education, sometimes without even intending to. What should girls be allowed to wear to school? Oh, also about queer youth. I guess at that point, it was really like lesbian, gay, and bisexual. And these were the predominant terms at that time. So Riot Girl was, was responding to the forces and the issues that were the most prominent at that time. These days, so much of conservative ideologies about what's appropriate for people of this or that gender coalesce around the figure of like the trans child or the trans teenager more than like the girl specifically. And so I think that the girl focusedness of Riot Girl, I mean, it's in the very name of it, is a product of its time. And in, in our current period, where one of the most common ways that young people will display or demonstrate their forward thinkingness on questions of gender is to specify which gendered pronouns they are using and that these gendered pronouns can change or they could have like multiple ones that are all acceptable or acceptable in different settings. It wouldn't be accurate to say that Riot Girl, as it was in the 90s, is still alive in the same way. I think what would be accurate would be to say that much of the attitudinal and aesthetic and political like bedrock ideas in Riot Girl have shown their enduring influence on both like politically forward thinking and like culturally radical movements and aesthetics in the years since the 1990s. Now, as I say that, I'm sure there are, I guarantee it, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of people out there who have Riot Girl in their TikTok or in their Instagram 
or who, you know, who consider themselves to be very tightly allied to that historical moment. As an organized formation, it has morphed and it's more of a sort of like aquifer influence that's feeding a range of different formations in the present. You know, it's a fascinating book. You know, I knew very peripherally some of the bands, some of the more famous bands, but, you know, I want to thank you for writing the book. And I'd also tell our listeners, if you really want to learn something, they should read your book and you'll come across some pretty cool uh, music as well. So thank you for joining us. And I have to ask, I don't know if this is a rumor or not, but are you now involved in a documentary film on this subject? I have appeared in a couple of different documentaries along these lines. The most recent was a Netflix series called This Is Pop. One of the episodes focuses on music and politics. That episode is called What Can a Song Do? And there are a couple of stories. Public Enemy is one of the stories focused on in that episode. And another story they focus on is Riot Girl. And they interviewed Alison Wolf of Bratmobile. And they interviewed me and a couple of other people to sort of tell that story and, and brought up a lot of old footage. It's really, they did a lovely job. There was an older documentary about Kathleen Hanna called The Punk Singer. They interviewed me for that too. And that's a lovely story of Kathleen Hanna's career up to whenever the movie came out. I want to say it was 10 years ago now. And I was in another documentary about queer core, which was sort of like the next thing, like the sequel to Riot Girl was, was this movement called Queer Core. So I'm in a documentary about that as well. Well, thank you for joining us. Anything, any more music writing uh, in your future? Um, well, I've just turned in the manuscript of my next book, which is on the incredibly cheery topic of political disappointment. And that book actually spans the whole of the 20th century and deals with literature as well as sound. And in that book, I've had a really good time listening to things that in many cases weren't exactly music, like a poetry reading at a women's music festival tour that took place in the late 70s or recordings of the folk singer Lead Belly that he made in the mid-1930s. I'm never going to stop writing about music and sound, and I'm looking forward to seeing where it takes me next. Well, that's great news. Thank you, Sarah Marcus. The book is Girls to the Front, the true story of the Riot Girl Revolution, and we thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Steve. If you would like to buy this book, please go to allmusicbooks.com, and you can buy it through our site. You can also check out the rest of our Deep Dive podcasts there as well and subscribe so you don't miss a thing. I'd also like to thank our engineer, Steve Folsom. You can check him out at fullsound.com. Finally, big ups to Frankie and the Pool Boys for their one-of-a-kind music played throughout the podcasts. You can check them out at frankieandthepoolboys.bandcamp.com and on all of the major streaming services. Please support local and independent writers and musicians. We're out until the next time, and thanks again for tuning in to Deep Dive, an allmusicbooks.com podcast, and now a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network.